Chapter 3 The Secret of the Sahara Kufara by Rosita Forbes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In this chapter, the passage in French was kindly read for us by Sonia. Chapter 3 The Escape from Jedabia. December 7th dawned brilliantly fine. We rose from our camp beds feeling joyfully that thirty-six hours would elapse before we slept on them again. Our morning was enlivened by the visits of two or three friends from the neighboring encampments. Sheikh Mohammed, the Haji, came in to tell us that we were welcome visitors to any Bedouin camp. He drank three glasses of sweet tea in three gulps, asked in a mysterious whisper for a cigarette, hastily put the whole packet into his sleeve, and demanded that I should repeat surahs from the Koran to him. I did so to the best of my ability, and he was much impressed. We meant to sleep in the afternoon, but the unsuspecting Sayed had most kindly ordered his slaves to perform a dance in our honor. So, about 3 p.m., the sound of drums was heard outside our blind walls. Ali summoned us forth in great excitement. We sat on two chairs before our door, and gradually the whole male population of Jedabia gathered round us, row upon row of the shrouded white figures crouching on the sand. In an irregular circle, round a couple of high drums, danced the black Sudanese slaves from Wadai, bought in the market at Kufara, presents from native potentates to the Senussi family, or children of slaves sent by the famous Ali Dinar, Sultan of Darfur. Slavery in the East is a kindly institution, quite unlike the horrors of Uncle Tom's cabin. The blacks are treated as part of the family. They are proud of their masters and devoted to them. They are trusted and confidential. Thus, Ali came to us one evening in honest grief. That Mustafa is a bad man, he said. He goes to the house of the doctor and says he has not had enough to eat here. It is not true. The Sayed is generous. There is everything here. It is not good for the Sayed's honor that such things should be said. The blacks enjoyed the dance even more than we did, for we had just heard that, through too much ardor on the part of our allies, there was likely to be a hitch in the arrangements. The long-delayed camels for the caravan had arrived at last. The soldiers had come in from Zutina. We had better all start together at midnight, said our confident triumphantly. Anyone who knows the East will realize how difficult it is for even two or three people to slip away secretly. Everyone's business is known from A to Z. Projects are discussed in the bazaars while they are still formless in the brain of the plotter. The idea that a score of camels and a dozen soldiers with luggage, tents, stores, guides, etc. could start secretly from Jedabia was ludicrous. Already there was a rumor in the souk that we were going to Kufara because of the unfortunate suggestion that we should accompany the caravan for a day or two. Therefore, even while we gazed at the gyrating circle of blacks who flung themselves into extravagant postures, chanting their monotonous songs and clicking together short sticks, we had sent post-haste to rearrange matters. News was brought to us that the delightful cavalry officer from Zutina had arrived two days before he was expected. I think I will go and have tea at the doctor's, I said firmly to Hassanein. I will stay with them there for two hours, which will give you plenty of time to get the caravan postponed. The spies were as clinging as limpets that day. Mabruk leant over my shoulder as I spoke, pointing to the wildest dancer with a forced smile. However, I was determined to spoil his little effort, and insisted that he and Mustafa should accompany me on my walk. I don't like going through all these people alone, I said, and reluctantly they had to come with me. Our last game of cross-purposes will always remain in my mind, for, with one eye on the clock, I summoned every atom of intelligence to my aid. I allowed myself to be reluctantly persuaded to return by Camion to Benghazi the following week. I asked reproachfully why no Ekwan could be found to accompany me on a little caravan tour. 
they assured me that none was willing to travel with a Christian, and that no one of that faith could journey beyond Jedebiah. I took up and emphasized this point for some time, as it would eventually preclude their attempting to follow us. I allowed my bitter disappointment to be seen, was comforted, and finally cheered up with a promise of visiting all the encampments on the way back. We parted the best of friends, and I shall always retain a grateful memory of their kindness and care. So often we longed to confide all our plans to them. We were sure of their sympathy, but their very hospitality would have made it impossible for them to allow their erstwhile guest to venture her life on such a wild and dangerous journey. Six months before, I had talked to an Arabian emir about my project. Hey, Maguna, he exclaimed to his wakil, she is mad. If she could get to Kufara, she could get to any place in heaven or earth. Thus, we knew from the beginning that we must hide our object from our generous Italian friends. If they hadn't thought that at least Hassanine had some political aim in coming to Jedebiah, remorse would probably have added to our mental troubles. But, luckily, the fact that they were obviously watching us turned the affair into a game and justified us in having a few secrets also. If my charming hosts in Cyrenaica read this book, I think they will forgive me for the part their own kindness and forethought forced me to play most unwillingly. They are all sportsmen. They, too, are travelers and lovers of the great desert. They laid the foundations of my journey by their long years of work in North Africa. They will reap the benefit when the friendship between European and Senussi is firmly cemented and the Bedouins welcome the influx of commerce and exploration from over the sea. I returned at 7 p.m. to our walled Arab house, but the fantasia was still continuing. The gift of our last packet of cigarettes had stimulated the performers to frenzy, and they were prepared to spend the night in an orgy of dance and song. Ordinarily, I should have loved watching their barbaric vigor, and I was exceedingly grateful to the ever-thoughtful Sayed for giving this festa in our honor. But we still had a good many preparations to make, so we regretfully thanked the performers and dispatched them to their homes. After a hasty meal, Ossanine went off to make final preparations concerning changing our Italian notes into heavy silver medjidies, the cumbersome coin of the country, buying bread and eggs, collecting the native dress, and a dozen other things that had to be done at the very last moment for fear of arousing suspicion. I wrote a note to our Italian interpreter, who had also proved guide, philosopher, and friend, explaining that I was not to be entirely deprived of my desert journey after all, for at the last moment I was able to accompany an equan who was traveling to an encampment a day or two away. I then made relays of green tea in an inadequate kettle and filled both our thermos flasks, also the water bottles. It was then nearly 9 p.m., at which hour Asinine had said he would return. But the minutes dragged on and there was no sign of his coming. At 10, I became anxious. I couldn't lie still any more and began walking up and down the big room by the light of one candle guttering on the window ledge. Ali came to me to ask if he and the servant, who was also a spy, could go home. I said he must stay until Hassanine Bay returned for I did not want to give the boy an opportunity of inquiring into my companion's designs. But each hour that went by made our flight more and more difficult, for we could not begin to pack beds, luggage, etc., till the house was empty. At eleven, I was nearly frantic. I don't think I have ever spent the worst two hours. I began to wonder whether the spies had discovered our plot and, deciding to frustrate it at all costs, had arranged to have my ally knock senseless as he crossed the wide expanse of white sandstone between our house and the scattered buildings of Jedabia. At 11.30, as I was preparing to set forth in search, and was actually winding myself into the intricacies of a jurge so as to pass unnoticed in the dark, Hassanine arrived, staggering beneath the Mejides, for a very moderate sum in that coinage weighs intolerably. He discharged eggs, bread, and clothing in a heap, 
and explained that the usual Arab dilatoriness had delayed him. The letters to sheiks of Zawis were not ready, the eggs were not cooked, the clothes were not quite finished. However, we didn't wait for much talk. We sent off the servants with minute instructions about tomorrow's work. An Arab spy is clever in some ways, but he never looks ahead, so it is generally fairly easy to lull his suspicions. The instant the door shut behind them, we literally flung ourselves on the luggage. We wrestled first with the beds and flea bags, stuffing them into old sacks that looked like native bundles. The tent had to be disposed of in the same way. Its poles tied up with a red prayer rug, its canvas disguised in native wrappings. Not one single bit of European luggage must be visible. My suitcase was already packed, and it was but a minute's work to push it into a striped flour sack, but my heart sank when I saw Hassanine's room. It was still littered with what he called necessities. We packed and pushed and tugged at his bundles, getting frantically hot and tired, but always what we had, with superhuman effort, triumphantly strapped up a bulging roll. A minute later he would remember something he absolutely must put in and want the thing undone. When but half an hour was left before our departure was due, I became desperate and took matters into my own hands. I packed the food into one knapsack. The necessities I divided into two others. I shut his suitcase firmly on the most useful articles I could collect from the chaos. I stood over him equally firmly while he put Macintoshes with fleece linings, rugs, and extra native dress into the bedding. I pulled the straps to a tighter hole myself before scurrying off to dress. Let no one think it is easy to get into Bedouin feminine attire for the first time. The tight white trousers presented difficulties over riding breeches. The red tulv was too tight at the neck. The barakan needed much adjustment. One end flaps loose over the head, which is already swathed in a tight black handkerchief hiding all the hair, while the other is wound twice around in the form of a skirt that comes up over the left shoulder to make the front bit of the bodice. It is all held in place by a thick red woolen hezam, at least twelve feet in length, which is wound round and round till one's waist resembles a mummy and is tied on one side with dangling ends. Under this I wore my revolver belt with two fully loaded colts and a prismatic compass in a case. Glancing around my room as I put on my huge yellow heelless slippers, I decided it looked a very realistic picture of the abode left temporarily and in haste. My cherished blue tweed hung on one hook and a rose-red sweater on another. A few books and papers with a hot water bottle and some stockings were scattered on convenient chairs. The cases and sacks of stone stood formally around the walls. A bottle of complexion lotion was prominent on a shelf, and my European shoes were in their usual row. With a sigh of relief, I dragged the sack containing my suitcase to join the disguised camp outfit by the main door, and blowing out the candle in my room, closed the door for the last time. My cheerfulness rapidly evaporated when I crossed the court to Hassanine's room. The litter was inconceivable. Everything that we had shut twenty minutes ago was open. He himself, with ruffled wild hair, was still in shirt and riding breeches. To a casual observer, he appeared to be playing a game of leapfrog with various bundles, in which the object seemed to be to upset as many things as possible. "'You have exactly six minutes in which to get ready,' I said in an awful voice. A chair fell with a crash, breaking an eau de cologne bottle and sending a mass of little tubes, bottles, and boxes rolling to my feet. Thereafter followed ten minutes' best American hustle. In spite of feeling like a swathed Chinese infant in my cumbersome dress, I attacked that room with a personal venom that surely had effect even on inanimate things, for the suitcase shut almost unprotestingly on a huddled mass in which the parcels of medjities stuck out like Mount Everest. I don't know what I said. I imagined at the time it was quite unforgivable, but Asanayan is the most good-tempered person in the world. He submitted to being pushed and pulled into the white garments he had to wear over his European riding kit. 
voluminous white pantaloons, long flowing shirt, and woolen jerd. I believe I banged a white kufia on his head and flung an aggle at him before rushing from the room to take up my position behind the main door, with a tiny dark lantern which revealed the piles of corpulent sacks. When, a few minutes later, a stately white figure with flowing lines unbroken, save by the crossed revolver belts, true son of a sheik of the famous Azar University, joined me, I could hardly recognize in this solemn Arab the wild individual who was playing at haymaking a few minutes before. Of course our fellow plotters were late. We waited nearly an hour crouched on the sacks, while the only thing that broke the silence of the desert night was the braying of a donkey near the suit. At about 1.45 we heard the faint roar of protesting camels, and our pulses quickened. Some ten minutes later, stealthy footsteps approached. There was a light scratch on the door, and the operation of the previous night was successfully repeated, only this time we had another quarter of an hour's suspense after the porters went forth with the first sacks before they could return for the last. Our confidant leaned against the door, motionless and calm, looking at the starlight sky. Bahi, he murmured, as the mysterious figures reappeared, the only word he had uttered the whole time. Shouldering knapsack, water bottle, thermos flask, and kodak, I stumbled out of the dark passage into the moonless night. A strong cold wind met me, and I wondered, shivering, why a Bedouin woman does not freeze to death. I've never seen them wear anything but a cotton barricade. Even while I limped across the open white sands, for the camels were hidden some three hundred yards away near the rough cemetery that surrounds the deserted Borbit of Sidi Hassan, I felt that I wanted an overcoat even more than I wanted to go to Kufara. Nevertheless, it was freedom at last, and excitement thrilled us. There was a moment's pause on the part of our puzzled guide when an absolute blackness on all sides gave no hint of direction. Then a muffled roar told us that a camel was on our left, and the smothered sound of it suggested that someone was probably sitting on its head. A moment more, and a dark mass loomed up beside a broken wall. Thankfully, I subsided on a heap of stones. It is not the slightest use arguing with a camel driver about a load. It is a waste of energy to try to hurry him. He is used to weighing burdens minutely, to arranging them slowly to his own satisfaction. So I was prepared for an hour's wait while our retinue cut rope, made corners to the sacks with stones, discussed loads, lost camels, caught them again, and were generally inefficient. I was genuinely surprised, therefore, when in only twenty minutes everything was noiselessly packed and the camels were ready to start. Yusuf el-Hamri and Mohammed Kemish, our two confidential servants, were introduced to me in the dark, and we exchanged a few florid sentences in which the word Mazbut and Momnan played a large part. Then I hoisted myself onto my camel, a huge blonde beast with no proper saddle, a spike stuck up in front of me and behind, and his hump was painfully evident between the rolled straw of the baggage surge. On the top were folded a couple of native mats, and thereon I perched in my uncomfortable, closely wound clothes, which made mounting a matter of peril and difficulty. In spite of all this, when my great beast rose to his stately height and moved off into the night, exhilaration rushed over me. I hadn't been on a camel for three months, and then on the beautiful trotting Hajin of the Sudan. This was only a fine baggage hamla, but he was in keeping with the desert, and the night, and our wild, impossible project. I was happy. Also, it was a wonderful start. Sir Richard Burton wisely writes that the African traveler must always be prepared for three starts, the long one, the short one, and the real one. Later, we realized how right he was. But for the moment, as our little line of camels swayed off into the darkness beyond the white morbid, we only felt that we had escaped. How amazing that they can find their way in pitch darkness like this, I exclaimed, and only when Orion had appeared in four different directions did I begin to wonder whether they could. We had started just before three, striking a northerly course which surprised us, 
as we knew that Augela lay to the south. We comforted ourselves with the idea that our guides were purposely avoiding the main track, and patiently we bore the icy wind and constant change of direction. When, after an hour, we turned completely round, we decided it was necessary to expostulate. Yusuf, on being shown a luminous compass, refused to believe that the north was where the needle directed. We pointed out the extraordinary movement of the stars, and he remained unconvinced. He looked pathetically at the heavens and asked persistently for Jedi, the star that had guided him, apparently in many wanderings over half Africa. Unfortunately, we could not find her for him, though we pointed out most of the constellations from the Great Bear to the Milky Way. We continued our aimless progress for another hour. As we were merely describing irregular circles, we were not surprised when a little before five a chorus of dogs barking proclaimed our nearness to Jedebiah. It is an encampment, said Yusuf. I know where we are now. And at that moment the donkey and the souk brayed quite close to us. I couldn't help laughing. In a few minutes our desperate midnight flight would land us before the doors of the house from which we had escaped so triumphantly three hours earlier. The distressed Yusuf, inexplicably bereft of his tame star, was all for camping there and then to await the dawn, but lest the rising sun should reveal to the astonished eyes of the early astir a disheveled party asleep on the space before the mosque, I firmly took command. By the compass, I marched them due south of the donkey's bray for half an hour. At least, we should be out of sight at dawn and could then start off on the right track. The wind seemed colder than ever as we barracked our camels in the flat, sandy waste. We were frozen and shelterless. Excitement, suspense, and physical labor had all combined to wear us out. My foot was swollen and inflamed after its unusual exercise. Hassanine had rheumatism in his back. There was an hour to wait for the dawn. I doubt if a more miserable couple existed than the two who rolled themselves into the thin and dirty camel rugs and lay down on the hard sand, their heads on tufts of spiky grass. I did not sleep. It was too cold. The wind searched out every corner of my aching body. I began to feel the strain of our sleepless nights and days of suspense. Even my sense of humor had gone. It was five weeks since we had left England, and we had got no further than a sand heap outside Jedabia. At six, a flush of pale pink appeared in the sky in a direction which amazed Yusuf. Shivering with chattering teeth, we rose to a windy dawn. Mohammed was already murmuring, Allahu Akbar, devoutly turning toward the Qibla at Mecca. We followed his example, abluting in the sand as is permissible when there is no water. Luckily, it is only necessary to go through the fatha and the requisite raqwa'at. The kneeling position hurt my foot excruciatingly, and I could hardly get it into my huge yellow shoe again. The men bestirred themselves to some purpose. Five minutes after the last Salamu alaikum wa rahmat Allah had saluted the angels who stand on either side to record a man's good and bad deeds, the camels were loaded, and we were moving away from the white quaba of Sidi Hassan and the scattered mud houses which appeared but a stone's throw distant. There had been no time to eat. I tried to force a hard-boiled egg down my throat as I swayed along, but I could not manage it. Hassanine was doubled up with rheumatism, and I tried every possible position to ease my foot. My hands were numb as I clutched the gaudy barakan, red, blue, and orange, round me, and prayed for the sun to warm me. Every few minutes we turned around to see if Jedebiah had disappeared, but it must stand on a slight rise as the morbid was visible for three hours. Distance is elusive in the desert. Everything looks much nearer than it really is. One sees the palms of an oasis early in the morning, plans to arrive before midday, and is lucky if one reaches it by sunset. However, by 10.30, every sign of human habitation had disappeared, and only a flat, sandy plain, tufted with coarse gray brush a few inches to a foot high, lay all around us. Thankfully, we halted, 
turned the camels to graze, spread the scarlet woven rugs in the sun, and prepared to eat. Further troubles threatened when we discovered that our retinue, Yusuf, Mohammed, and two coal-black Sudanese soldiers, had brought no provisions of any sort. They had trusted either to us or to joining the southbound caravan within a few hours. Consternation seized us. In order to travel light, we had brought what we considered the least possible amount of food necessary for two people for a week. That is, one tin of meat per day with a very small ration of flour, rice, dates, and tea. How were we going to feed six people for perhaps a fortnight on it? At the moment, we were too tired to think. We doled out to the retinue rice, tea, and most of the hard-boiled eggs intended for ourselves, and, after the frugal meal, insisted on immediate departure. There was a great deal of grumbling. They were all tired, and they wanted to sleep there and then. The blacks were openly rebellious. We are not your slaves, they said. We will not overtire ourselves. However, by force of sarcasm, encouragement, and laughter, we got them to load the camels. In Libya, they do not girth the baggage saddles at all. They merely balance the bales evenly according to weight on either side of a straw pad round the hump. Thus, if the camel stumbles badly or is frightened and runs a few paces, the luggage overbalances and crashes to the ground, generally terrifying the beast into a mad gallop. I suppose ours were carelessly loaded, for the tent dropped off three times and tempers grew sulky. About one, we came to a small cluster of camel's hair tents in the shelter of a slight rise, and the retinue clamored to stop there for the night. The Arab is greedy by nature, while the Sudanese is positively voracious. At one meal, he will devour what would support a European family for a day. Having seen our meager provisions, the retinue thought they would get a better dinner in these Bedouin tents. They protested and argued violently, but we were ruthless. There was fear of pursuit and of being recognized. Yusuf joined his hands in prayer. We will say that you are the wife of an Ekwan, he said, and that we are taking you to Jallo. But he pleaded in vain. We moved on, and they followed, perforce, surly, bronze Bedouins and coarse woolen jurds, rifles slung across their backs. The impressions cherished since childhood are gradually disappearing from my mind. One hears so often of the untiring endurance of the Bedouin and of his frugal fare. I used to believe that he could ride for days without sleep and live on a few dates or locusts. He may be able to do the latter if he is absolutely obliged to, but normally his appetite is large and his amiability depends on his food. With regard to his endurance, I have met some Touaregs who had accomplished some amazingly swift rides, but in the French Sahara, in Syria, or in Libya, as in Sudan, I have never found an Arab who did not want to camp several hours before I did. South of Togert, I once had a delightful guide called Ali, a blue-eyed, ruddy-haired Tourig, who must have had vandal blood in his veins, and he used to get positively haggard after a nine-hours ride without a pause. After 2.30, we could not urge our retinue farther. It was obvious that they were very tired, but it is doubtful if they were as exhausted as we were, for we had worked very hard the preceding day and night while they were foddling in the souk. However, Yusuf seized my camel rein. This is a good place. We must rest, he said. And it was no use exasperating them. We had ridden for six hours. A camel does a regular two and a half miles an hour, so we imagined ourselves about fifteen miles from Jedebiah, and safe from pursuit. Almost before we had got the sacks off the camels, Mohammed had rolled himself in his jurd and was actually asleep. Yusuf helped us half-heartedly while we struggled to put up the tent, but we unrolled bedding, put down ground sheets, doled out provisions, fitted the camp beds together ourselves. The Sudanese collected brushwood, yawning violently and infinitely wearily. We boiled tea and drank it sugarless, for the retinue had the usual Arab passion for sugar. 
I looked at myself once in a tiny hand glass, and was thankful to put it down, for I hardly recognized the begrimed and haggard visage, yellow, sunburnt, and lined, that peered out under the heavy black handkerchief between the folds of the barracan. A gale rose suddenly, and it nearly swept our tent away. But we did not mind. We slept fitfully, woke to cook rice on a brushwood fire, and went to bed about 6 p.m. with a thankfulness too deep for words. Feather mattresses, frilled pillows, Chippendale or Louis XV beds all have their charms, but I have never been so grateful for any as I was that night for my flea bag and my air cushion. At six next morning, Yusuf woke us with a cry of El Fagar, and after the usual prayers, we set to work to break camp. We informed the retinue that we intended to reach Wadi Farag and its well that day, and therefore they must not count on a midday halt. Consequently, they insisted on making a fire and cooking half our week's rations straight away. We started at 8 a.m. and continued a southeasterly southerly course all day. Wadi Fareg is only 60 kilometers from Jedabia, but I imagine our first day we must have made a detour in order to avoid the main route, for it was not till 2 o'clock on the second day that a mirage on the horizon, a sheet of silver water bordered with purple mountains, proclaimed the position of the wadi. It is Bayad, Bayad, said Mohammed. We cannot reach it before sunset. Let us rest now. This time, however, we would not stop. We had shared our flasks of tea and our dates evenly with him at noon, and we felt that after a good night's sleep, if we could ride nine hours on end, they could too. It was an absolutely perfect day, cloudless and still, but the sun was very hot at noon. It scorched through the thin folds of my barracan and made one wonder why Europe, and not Africa, invented parasols. The character of the country remained unchanged. Always the same sandy scrub stretched away as far as the eye could see. Occasional jerboas or lizards scuttered into their holes as we approached. Once, a dozen gazelle fled swiftly across our path. Mohammed tried a shot at them but he was too slow. Another time we passed a large rabbit warren and a couple of white scuts disappeared into the labyrinth of holes. We struck a main track about noon and I noticed a sage bush covered with bits of different colored threads. It appears that every wayfarer adds a piece of cotton or wool from his attire to show that this is a desert road and that caravans pass that way. Yusuf contributed a white thread from his girdle, and I a red one from my long hazam. All that day we met only two travelers. I discreetly covered my face while they exchanged greetings with our retinue. The desert telephone was at work again. They brought news from Jallo, which they exchanged for tales of Jedabia. They were not interested in us. Mrs. Forbes had disappeared into space, and in her place was a Mohammedan woman called Karajah, traveling with a kinsman, an Egyptian bey, son of a sheik El-Azhar. She wore Bedouin clothes, followed their customs, prayed to their god, lived their life. Her language was certainly different, but the Arabic varies so immensely between Baghdad and Marrakesh that my faltering conversation was attributed to my being accustomed only to the classical language. Even Hassanein could hardly understand a dialect used by the Libyan Bedouins, it is not a case of accent or pronunciation. Nearly all the words are different. I cannot imagine why Wadi Farag is marked on the map as a vivid green splash across the colorless desert. The slight depression running due east and west between the two faint ridges about 15 meters high varies in no respect from the surrounding country. No blade of grass or green thing decorates it. Nothing breaks the monotonous sand and gray brushwood except the one well of bitter brackish water. We arrived just as the sun was setting and had difficulty in getting the camels past the well in order to camp on the higher ground beyond. Asanine was riding on a nervous naga, or female, who never kept her head in one direction for more than a minute or two. She now decided to race for the well, while a playful companion kicked off a bale or two, upset the balance of the rest, 
caught her foot in a falling sack and tore wildly away scattering her load to the winds my stately beast was in an amorous mood so with guttural gurglings he added himself to the general melee i had to dismount and limp up to the rise dragging him forcibly after me while the men collected our belongings and reloaded them it was a race with the sun but we just won it as the last crimson glow faded in the radiant west and the devout mohammed lifted a sandy nose from his ablutions the last tent peg was driven in brush fires gleamed on the rise opposite for wherever there is a desert well there are a few scattered tents of the nomads whose homes move with the season in the pasture we made a flaming pyre and sat round it in a circle of pack saddles yusuf had found his beloved jedi and he pointed her out to me triumphantly the pole star the silence of the desert encircled us and a faint scent of time stole up from the cold sand faraj both the black sudanese were called faraj began intoning verses of the koran a melodious sound in the starlit night then surprised by his own song he suddenly sprang to his feet and chanted loudly triumphantly the muzayans call to prayer allahu akbar allahu akbar ashadu ila ilaha ilalala wahashadu ina muhammadan rasul allah the shihada rolled splendidly intolerant from his lips and his voice rose higher on the cry haya alasala haya alafela till we all took up the chorus of allahu akbar allahu akbar as i undressed in the harim portion of the tent which had enormously impressed our retinue i pondered on the character of these men with whom we were to live in familiar intercourse for months apart from their fierce fanaticism which made it a duty for them to kill the infidel and the nasrani as we killed dangerous and pestilential vermin they had the simplicity of children i felt that our blacks would steal all our food one day if they happened to be hungry and defend us most gallantly the next they are utterly unable to provide for the morrow their trust in allah is of the blind kind that does not try to help itself yet the koran says allah works with him who works again and again we told them about the scarcity of food we showed them the pathetic limit of our provisions they said the caravan will come tomorrow inshallah knowing the dilatory habits of the east i had very little faith in the arrival of that caravan for at least a week but we agreed to their persistent request to camp for two days at the wadi to give it a chance of joining us if it did not arrive on the evening of the eleventh bringing with it all our provisions we should have to send back the two blacks and continue post haste to ajuela with yusuf and mohammed with that intent we put into one sack the smallest quantity of food for four people for five days that is a tin of meat or sardines per person per day with coffee and dates when this was done we were horrified at the little that remained the blacks wanted to bake great flat loaves of unleavened bread morning and evening and we had so very little flour i began to realize that if the caravan did not arrive we should die of exhaustion on the way to Aljela let us once lose the way let a storm delay us let the retinue prove unreliable insist on eating more than the day's meager ration and we should be lost yet we were determined on one thing only not to go back in any case we have the peace and quiet of the desert i thought as i went to sleep and woke a few hours later to pandemonium indescribable I've heard the roar of an uncaged lion in Rhodesia, but never before had I heard such mad bellows of rage as made the night hideous. The camels have gone mad, I gasped as I flung myself out of the tent. Thunder of sound broke from a heaving black mass only a few yards from our canvas walls. Shouts came from Yusuf and Mohammed, who seemed to be aimlessly dancing around the wildly excited beasts. Then the mass crashed, roaring to its feet, and two camels dashed madly past me, missing the tent by a foot. I found Asinine only half awake at my elbow. What are they doing? he said blankly. 
in the spring the camel's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of love but it isn't the spring he objected drowsily never mind god they're coming back we retreated hastily from the tent in syria i had seen a maddened beast go right through a tent in such a mood and the vision of the crushed poles and canvas intricately mixed up with shattered baggage and an absolutely flattened camp bed flashed across me i took up a strategic position in the open but the bellowing brutes staggered away again their roars mercifully fading in the distance is this likely to happen often i asked yusuf yes when it is cold he answered indifferently two things increase in winter the camels and the sea we enjoyed the rare luxury of sleeping late next morning and we woke to another gorgeous day the water from the well was almost undrinkable it was so salt and muddy but we washed in it triumphantly unfortunately hassanine was tempted to wash his hair with the odd result that it thereafter stood up like a tuft of coarse ostrich feathers everything dries appallingly in the desert one's skin is cracked and lined after a few days one's nails break one's hair dries and becomes brittle yet one does not mind the desert has a subtle and a cruel charm she destroys while she enthralls she is the siren from whom there is no escape cynthia stockley whom i met years ago in bulwell writes in one of her vivid stories of african life that once the desert has stuck her claw into a man he must return to her for only she can heal the wound she has made the preceding night the wadi had been empty that morning it was crowded half-naked brown figures hauled water for a great herd of camels who crushed round the low mud walls of the well a flock of sheep waited their turn at a short distance more camels strayed slowly down the rise grazing as they walked some white figures came up to greet us rifles slung across their backs they were the dwellers of the nougas whose fires we had seen the night before the desert wires had informed them of our imminent arrival before we had left jedebia they sat around our brushwood fire and drank tea sweetened with crushed dates as the sugar had run out Haas and i left them to foddle with our retinue and went and sat on a sand hill and dreamed visions of the caravan that would end all our troubles coming over the rise opposite instead we saw only faraj go down the wadi to buy bitter camel's milk and date pulp highly flavored with sand from the nugaman when the sunset dyed the land to crimson glory we returned to our camp frantically hungry for we had eaten nothing since eight a m and then only rice and tinned vegetables because the latter were disliked by our retinue the two blacks were playing draughts on the sands with white shells and camel dung Fadl, urged the mohammed smiling Fadl. do not live always alone said yusuf mix with us a little we shall not forget who is master from this i knew that hassanine had won another of his personal victories he had a wonderful way of gaining the confidence and the sympathy of arabs from the sayyids down to the fanatical bedouin the mental atmosphere of our retinue had been most unpropitious during the first two days we realized that our journey would be almost an impossibility unless it changed but wisely hassanine would not hurry matters a word dropped here and there a swift rebuke or a warm praise hinted sympathy with the senussi aims tales of old friendship with the sayyids little councils of war in the outer tent had all borne fruit we felt the effect that night as we toasted ourselves before the fire watching faraj knead his heavy bread and cook it on the ashes when it was baked he pressed some on us with a broad toothless smile it was hot heavy and indigestible but wholly delicious with our corned beef only the cocoa was a failure as the water was terribly salt I settled myself into the double woolen flaps of my flea bag that night with a great sense of peace. The thermometer had soared up at midday, but the nights were always chilly, and we were extremely grateful for our rainproof sleeping sacks, sprinkled with insect powder, which, by the way, had no effect whatever on the fleas. The third morning in Jedebiah, I had spent a happy half-hour chasing agile insects around my bedding. 
Hassanine entered with breakfast at my most heated moment, when I thought I had cornered the largest. A sweet smile spread over his face. There are dozens and dozens in my room, he said, but it doesn't matter. At least I have found the use for my target pistol. Don't ever laugh at me again for useless baggage. I thought of this as I heard a bed upset on the other side of the partition. But this time it was only a delicious little field mouse scurrying wildly around in search of her hole, which was probably somewhere under our ground sheet. A little later, I heard the Koran intoned verse by verse, and to its monotonous murmur I fell asleep, wondering at the desert spell which had changed the Oxford blue into a typical Bedouin, devout as the fanatic whose prayers rose five times a day to Allah aloof as the nomad whose wishful eyes are ever on a desert horizon, impenetrable as the jury which muffled him from head to foot. December 7th provided us with a ghibli, a strong south wind laden with sand, which nearly tore up our tent pegs and covered everything with a thick yellow coating. It was a most unpleasant day. Hair, eyes, and skin were full of sand. Everything we ate was flavored with it. The dust sheet was three inches deep in it. It oozed from the pillows and from every article of clothing. It penetrated every box and bag. The noise of flapping canvas and cracking pegs was a continual strain, and in the middle of it arrived a messenger from Jedabiah, bearing a letter from Benghazi, which our opponents had sent on with an amused message written on the back, Nous vous envoyons notre sincère admiration pour l'aptitude que vous avez pour des décisions très rapides, avec nos meilleurs souhaits d'un bon et très long voyage désertique. I think the French emanated from the cavalry officer with a sense of humor. From the beginning, he may have suspected our whole project, but, a noted fencer, he was as clever with words as with the foils. However, we knew that a messenger who confessed that he had been told to follow us even unto Jallo would not be sent merely to bring us an unimportant letter. He was intended to find out our destination for certain, so we thought he had better wait with us until the caravan arrived or until we ourselves left for Jallo. Farage amused us immensely, for having got it into his head that the man was a spy, he wanted to shoot him at once. It took a good deal of persuasion on our parts to prevent this bloodthirsty deed. The Sayyid told me to protect you. If I do not kill this man, the Sayyid will surely kill me, he said morosely. We comforted him by telling him to watch the man did not escape, but not to hurt him. Yet when Hassanine was asleep that afternoon, and I heard the click of a rifle lock, I rushed frantically to see that the man was safe. He, too, had come without any food. The improvidence of the race had begun to anger me. Should manna fall from heaven, I believe they would eat their fill and pick up none for the morrow. We broke the news to the retinue that we should have to leave the blacks at the Nougas to wait for the caravan and to hurry it up when it finally arrived, and ourselves go on to Aljela by forced marches. We told them we would start early and ride ten or eleven hours a day, pitch no tent to save labor, share our food evenly with them, but they must expect to be very hungry for four or five days. There was a good deal of protest because they looked with simple faith to the caravan, and they could not realize that if we waited four days and it had not arrived, starvation would drive us back to Jedabia. The form of protest showed, however, how well things were going. They now looked upon us as their friends. The arrival of the spy had made a bond between us. We knew that you were hurt by the coming of that man, they said, but you are safe with us. It is our honor, too. We tried to explain the difficulty about food, and Mohammed suddenly showed the fine clay he was made of. I have felt ashamed, he said, that we have taken your food for three days, that we have asked you for sugar when you have none. I would have liked to share my food with you, as is our habit, but we were ordered to come with you at the last moment. We asked if we might visit our homes. No, we were told, the caravan will follow with all things needful. It is not our fault 
but we feel it deeply that you are depriving yourselves for us. This is the loyal spirit that lies at the heart of every Bedouin. Greedy for food he may be, and the stranger with gold is not safe with him, but once you are his friend he will never betray you. These men were beginning to realize our sympathy for their race, our love for their customs and country. They had eaten our bread and salt, we had shared all we had with them, and we had taken them wholly into our confidence. We were guests of their Lord, the Holy One, the Blessed of Allah. We were friends of their blood and religion. The Italians should not get us back. They swore to protect us as their own families. We had won another fight. We will find food somehow in the Nugas, said Yusuf. No Arab starves in the desert. We showed them a simple letter of greeting from Sidi Idris. They almost prostrated themselves to kiss the sacred writing. This was the same ungrudging loyalty that we had witnessed among the humble Aguahir whose tents we had visited between Soluk and Gabines. Their lives belonged to the Sayyid, therefore they were at our disposal. Their courage and faith were undaunted because they were the essence of simplicity. Surely the glories of a race which can give its all so ungrudgingly cannot be entirely in the past. The great history of Omar, of Ibn Nebu Musa, of Harun al-Rashid, and Saladin may yet be repeated. There are leaders who understand the heart of their people, but perchance they only know that they have power without knowing how they can use it. It has ever been the policy of European nations to break up the Arab races, to create discord among their princes, to induce their chiefs to oppose one another. Is it not a short-sighted policy in view of the widespread unrest in Europe today? Our Western empires and kingdoms are large enough. Concentration and not expansion should be our program. In the days of Muhammad ben Ali, a caravan under his protection could pass safely from Tripoli to Wadai. All the great caravan routes were open for commerce and trade. How many are open today? Strengthen the hand of the native ruler with all the prestige of European support, and he will be responsible for the opening up of his country for the safe conduct of travelers, for the friendly intercourse that will allow grain and hides and dates and tea to cross the age-old desert routes. End of chapter 3